What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is epi- I think this is episode 90 of the podcast. Oh, my God, episode 90. Um, yeah, so we're not a very new podcast anymore, but uh, for those of you just tuning in for the first time, basically what we try to do here on the podcast is um, I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published. And, uh, you know, so that way we can have a conversation about the book and hopefully you guys will enjoy the, enjoy the discussion and, uh, hopefully at the end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, go out and, uh, purchase the book for yourself and give it a read. So yeah, if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show and also by sharing with your friends as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Mark A. Knoll, and Dr. Knoll is the Francis A. McEnany Professor Emeritus at the University of Notre Dame and a recipient of the National Endowment for the Humanities Medal. He is the author of Protestantism, a very short introduction, uh, The New Shape of World Christianity, How American Experience Reflects Global Faith, God and Race in American Politics, a Short History, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis, America's God, from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln. From Every Tribe and Nation, A Historian's Discovery, The Global Christian Story. Jesus Christ and the Life of the Mind. And In the Beginning Was the Word, The Bible in American Public Life, 1492 to 1783. And lastly, he is the author of America's book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization, 1794 to 1911, which was published back in June by Oxford University Press and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Noel, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. Oh, no problem. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so what made you want to write this book? I mean, obviously, it's a sequel or a companion volume, I guess, to uh, In the Beginning Was the Word, which covered you know, American biblical civilization throughout the colonial period. And then this volume, volume covers roughly the first... 120 or so years of the history of the United States. Uh, was the plan uh, always to take uh, take the story, take the narrative this far, or did you um, did you uh, when you were doing in the beginning was the was the word was that uh, your plan just to do that book, and then after you did it, you were like, well, might as well take a, you know continue this uh, continue this theme even further. What was the what was the genesis of the book? Well, originally I hoped to do from Columbus into the 20th century, and 1911 is a really good stopping point because that was the 300th anniversary of the King James Version of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, um, Woodrow Wilson, who was uh, canvassing to see if he should run for president, Teddy Roosevelt, former president, and William Jennings Bryan, the three-time Democratic nominee for president, all gave memorable speeches on the King James Bible. Um, The beginning point with Columbus, obviously, but for this book was 1794, and a really uh, important uh, work by Thomas Paine, hero of the American Revolution, that that attacked the traditional views of the Bible. Now, the, the genesis of the 
whole study of the Bible and history does go back farther. And I, I've got to beg your indulgence to talk about two, yeah, sure. go right ahead. two uh, roots that lead to this fruit. More than 40 years ago, a group of historians that I was a part of were sitting around talking about what was a big issue in our religious circles. We were all associated with conservative Protestant denominations of one kind or another. And these denominations were in a, a real uh, uh, crisis talking about the character of biblical inspiration. And of course, the historians, we were, we were not indifferent to that question, but our immediate thought was, well, if it's good to talk about the kind of theory of the Bible, shouldn't people be interested in what individuals in American history have actually done with the Bible? So that was a kind of push toward historical study of the Bible in time, for which there had been some precedent, but really not surprisingly, not, not too much. So that's a kind of religious beginning. But then secondly, as I got deeper into my own historical work in the 18th and, and early 19th century in particular, it became really clear that the start of the United States had left a kind of vacuum as to how a free society was going to be organized. The American patriots uh, agreed that corruption of power in Britain was leading to tyranny. So once they got rid of the loyalists, and there were actually a very substantial number of loyalists, once they got rid of the loyalists, there was agreement on that point. But there was not much agreement, and really in many ways not much of a roadmap as to how to put together a new free society. We had 13 states, and soon 14, 15, and 16, that were, that were disparate. They, they, were, they really weren't pulling in the same direction. And what became clear over time to me is that Protestant groups relying upon the authority of the Bible made a kind of heroic effort to see if they could organize a culture, a civilization, not, not a political entity, but a culture and a civilization by following the Protestant principle of the supremacy of the, the scripture. And I think that uh, from this massive reaction that took place against Thomas Paine when he published Against the Bible in 1794 and 1795, there was about a 35 year period when uh, efforts to promote the Bible as a basis for civilization, as well as for religious purpose, was really prominent. This is one, one example. Uh, the American Bible Society, founded in 1816, was the first national organization to make the distribution of print more than a local enterprise. The American Bible Society pioneered uh, stereotype printing. It pioneered the spoke and hub way of distributing things. It was really, it may have been the, the, the biggest, most well-endowed, best-funded organization in the United States, even more than the government. Okay, but by the end of the 1820s, it was clear that this Protestant aspiration would not work. Part of the problem was uh, Protestants couldn't agree among themselves over how to interpret the Bible. They agreed the Bible was the word of God, the Bible should be followed. How should it be followed? But there was disagreement. And then Increasingly, in the 1820s and 1830s, there was massive disagreement over what the Bible said about the American system of slavery. 
So from the mid-1820s to the time of the Civil War, there's just hundreds of publications claiming the Bible supports American slavery, claiming the Bible opposes American slavery. So when you had that kind of disagreement, the idea of constructing a whole civilization, a culture, on the basis of biblical values collapsed, even though at this time, and really until after the Civil War, Protestants are dominant in American religious life. You have the beginning of Catholic immigration. There's a very small Jewish population by the 1860s. Mm-hmm. But for the control of public life, Protestants are really in charge. And the kind of Protestants that were active in the U.S. were, were the more evangelical, more, we would even say, extreme Protestants who wanted to say the Bible and not tradition, the Bible and not authority. We're going to build a civilization on the Bible alone. And that seemed to work for a while. Of course, the pluralism that would come with more Catholics, more Jews, and eventually more people who aren't interested in religion at all, that would undercut the aspiration to have a Bible civilization. But it's really the the disagreements among the Protestants themselves, and particularly over the issue of slavery, that I think brings an end to the idea, idea that there could be a Bible civilization. Two more quick things that I've already meandered too long. But <laughs> the, uh, once the idea of giving up a, a, an entire civilization on the Bible, it, it more or less becomes impossible. The scriptures obviously still continue to have a major impact in the culture, the society. And that's that's the last part of the second part of the, the book, current book. But then another thing to be said is that by the 1830s, amazingly, there had grown up in the United States also a real fascination with the Bible among the African-American communities. Now, this is relatively small scale because literacy is not widespread at this time. And there's a great deal of of, uh, effort, particularly in the white South, to keep African-Americans away from Bible knowledge. But by the 1830s, certainly 1840s, there are, among African-American communities, a real strong attachment to the Bible, but that attachment is very different than the Mm -hmm. attachment of all whites, whatever they thought about uh, slavery. So the story gets complicated by the time we get to the mid-19th century, and it's some of these complications I was trying to detail and and, uh, document in the current book. Gotcha. Uh, you use a phrase in the uh, to describe America in this period uh, quite often in the book, and or uh, you call America in this period a post-Christendom America. What do you mean by America post-Christendom? Yes, the uh, one one of the real uh, strong impetuses for the American Revolution, the War for Independence, was the belief that the church-state establishment of Britain, and of course in Great Britain there's a Presbyterian church establishment in Scotland and in England there's an Anglican church establishment, that the union of church and state, Christendom, European Christendom in its traditional form, the union of church and state was one of the principal drivers of the corruption that colonists saw in parliaments, what they considered tyrannical actions toward the colonies. So the the Republican, small-r Republican theory that became so widely prevalent held 
that over concentrations of power undercut virtue and promoted tyranny. So the new United States begins in the Constitution with the First Amendment, where we're not going to have any national establishment, national union of church and state. And although several of the New England states have a kind of church establishment that continues on for many years, and quite a few of the other new state constitutions have religion clauses. So I think it's 11 of the 13 original state all have some kind of restrictions in their constitutions for religion. You have to believe in the, the, the Bible. You have to, in some cases, believe in Christ. The Maryland Constitution is interesting because they don't want to dis discriminate between Catholics and Protestants, but there's a there's a religious clause. So the, the, the Christianity is not being dispensed with, but Christendom is. The, the way of joining church and state that had been common in Europe. And so we have what seems to me really quite an interesting experiment in the post-Constitution, 1789 and following, period in U.S. history. There's a lot of Christians, and with the rise of the Methodists, there's, there's a really tremendous expansion of Christian faith amongst the ordinary people, amongst the common population. But there's not much of a desire, except with some Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Unitarians, Episcopalians, there's not much of a desire to have any formal connections between church and state. And so Christianity, but not Christendom. And the American experiment for many of these Protestants, and then later on for Catholics and Jews and eventually Muslims, the American experiment is how, how do you maintain a traditional religion based upon scripture in a situation where you're going to do something that is almost unknown in Europe? You're going mm -hmm. to say well, the churches and the state aren't, aren't going to be connected. We're not going to take taxes from the state to support the churches. or We're not going to have a, a whole lot of connections between the churches and the, and the state. Now, there were, there were more that just existed because people didn't know what else to do in those early days. But there's a deliberate turn aside from what had been the main European pattern. Okay. So um, another thing, what is the, you talk about a, a bit about this in the book, what is the difference between um, arguing from scripture and simply using scripture to support an argument? And why is that distinction uh, critical or crucial to have a balanced ass assessment of the uh, the Bible's place in American history. Right. So uh, because the colonies are British, the uh, cultural presence of the King James Version is almost universal. So in the Revolutionary period, for example, we have a lot of a lot of people. Uh, particularly in New England, but not, not only in New England, a lot of patriots who say our struggle against tyrannical Britain is like the struggle of the Israelites in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, against the Pharaoh of Egypt. Of course, there were a few loyalists who said just the reverse, that the, the patriots were acting like Pharaoh. And, but the main patriotic voice was to say we have an analogy. Um, George Washington uh, who is a kind of reserved Anglican Episcopalian churchman, nevertheless quotes from the, uh, the Old Testament when he talks about how great it would be if people could live under their own vine and fig tree. You know, it takes a phrase from the prophets in the Old Testament, uses it many, many different times. 
he's not arguing, he's not using any theme from the Hebrew scriptures from the Old Testament to make an argument, but, he, but he's using the language. Tom Paine's common sense from 1776 was different. He actually was arguing against monarchy of any kind, and he tried to use the passage from uh, the first book of Samuel, where Israel, Israel asked for a king, and the prophet Samuel says, no, this is a bad idea. Kings are going to just make your life terrible. And, and Payne said, well, this, this proves that the colonists should throw off the king. That kind of reasoning was rare. It was much more common to use symbols, exemplars. Uh, Benjamin uh, uh, Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were charged by the Continental Congress to come up with a seal for the United States. And their first idea was to have images from the deliverance in the book of Exodus where God had brought the children of Israel out, out, of, out of Egypt. They weren't making an argument, they were just using the language. Now, as we move into the 1790s, early uh, 19th century, there are more people who begin to argue uh, that the Bible should be followed as a guide to life. And those, those people who made that argument were joined eventually by a great crowd of Americans who turned to the scriptures for guidance, not just exemplars, not just analogies, but guidance on the question of slavery. Should the American system of slavery be approved, lived with? Some of the people who thought it should be lived with didn't like it, but they, they, they still wanted to have some moral guidance, or should it be dispensed with? And on that question, it was much unlike Jefferson and Franklin saying, well, we need an image from the Old Testament. They said, well, look, here, here's what uh, the Pentateuch says. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Here's what uh, other passages of Scripture say about whether it's right to hold people in bondage or whether it's wrong to hold. So we get an argument trying to move uh, not just from the symbols, but really the substance of how to build a society. And that's the difference that, that I think uh, is important in recognizing the varied and multi-level history of, of a moral authority like the Bible. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, <clears throat> back to Tom Paine for a second, The Age of Reason, uh, which he said comes out in 1794. He talked a little bit about it, but um, this book is uh, sort of massively important, and, and the, re the responses to it, <laughs> responses to, uh, you know, Payne's writing are, uh, become almost like a something of a cottage industry in the United States and even in uh, even in England. Uh, but the the controversy controversy over over Payne's work over the Age of Reason, uh, this controversy is going to foreshadow much of later American history of the Bible. That's right, and um, this is this was a, a kind of. Uh, Historical matters hiding in plain sight. So everybody knows about Tom Paine's Common Sense, 1776. It was a, the, the landmark work that pushed many Americans who were nervous about Britain into concluding we got to get rid of the monarchy. Paine, by 1794, has gone to France. He's actually in prison uh, because of the machinations of the, of the conflicts in, in France. And he, he writes The Age of Reason to complete what he says is the liberation from past tyranny that he begun in common sense. And for Paine, the liberation from past tyranny means the liberation of mind from enthrallment 
to the belief that the Bible is the revealed word of, word of God. So he writes this pamphlet in 1794, sends it to Britain, it's published. And in Britain, he writes the second part in 1795, in Britain, there are legal challenges and actually a judgment of court against those who are promoting this work because it is undermining trust in the establishment. In the United States, the new United States, there's no legal proceedings against the distribution of the age of reason, and it's widely distributed. There's something like 15 reprintings within a year or two, and there'd only been 20 reprintings of common sense in 1776. But, but in the United States, the, re, the, the reaction is not formal and judicial, but it's informal and we would say democratic. So within uh, just a very few years, there is something like 80 separate printings in the United States of works opposing the age of reason, plus then an awful lot of writing against the age of reason in newspapers. I, I worked real hard in trying to develop a complete bibliography, and I wasn't successful because there were just so many works in so many places. There probably were two separate American publications that said Payne's on the right course, but at least 80 that said no. And the remarkable thing to me, again, was a, a, a unity in saying Payne's wrong about the Bible, but then disunity concerning the implication. So you had Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Episcopalians writing against uh, the Age of Reason saying Payne's wrong in the Bible, and if Payne's ideas are promoted, society's going to fall apart. And then you had Baptists, you had some Unitarians, you had some, uh, you had people who said Paine is dead wrong on Scripture, I'm, I, and I regret saying this because I admire his politics so much, <laughs> and Paine is correct on what he has to say about the dangers of corruption from on high. So we had American unity, virtual unity, in rejecting Paine and the Bible, but very different attitudes as to what the, the social and political implications were of a society that wanted to be, in some sense, Christian, but rejected pain on the Bible. And the implications going forward were that major issues of moral import would not, for the most part, be handled by the courts, but would be handled by uh, the public democratic uh, uh, print. And the democratic aspect of the print is really important because by the time the refutations of pain have come from the press. They've come from uh, just about every state in the United States. There's a recent uh, article showing that the very first publication in the Mississippi Territory was a substantial refutation of pain on, <laughs> on, on the Bible. Uh, so a general American resistance, but, but not a general American understanding as to how we move forward. And that's the division that, I, that makes uh, I dwell at, at length in, in the book, because there are people who are worried about pain on the Bible and as a radical. And there are people who say pain in the Bible is terrible, but we really like pain's politics. And those people begin to get at each other and how they, you build up an American society. The people who worry about pain and as being destructive society tend to want to have some kind of an informal Christendom take the place of, of uh, European Christendom, 
those on the other side, what I call the sectarian side, are nervous about any resemblance of concentration of power in the United States that looks anything like Britain. So I mentioned the American Bible Society before. That's a voluntary group, but it's nationwide, it's powerful, it's rich. And there are Baptists, there are followers of Alexander Campbell, there are others who say, well, I'm certainly for the Bible, but I'm really worried about the American Bible Society having, having too much power. So you get an internal, mostly Protestant still, an internal Protestant division over what we do now that we're going to let the Bible remain and not going to follow pain on the Bible. But how are we going to put our society together? Right. Okay. Um, there's a, a shift... Um, you talk about in uh, the framework of American religion and public life, a decisive shift, you say, um, during the administrations of Thomas Jefferson and uh, James Madison. Um, how, did the, how did the framework of American religion uh, and public life shift during this time? What's the, what's the, big, the, the big move? So when Jefferson is nominated to run for president in 1800, the Federalist Party, supporting John Adams, of course, treat Jefferson as if he's like Robespierre, the leader of the French Revolution. <laughs> so it's just a, this, we think today we have some wild and woolly political uh, polemics. Oh, yeah, it's tiddlywinks compared to back then. Uh, exactly. I mean, uh, so there's a respected minister in New York City who publishes a long article under the headline, Elect Jefferson and God Will Be Gone. There is actually documented reports of people going to the countryside and telling individuals, well, if you have a Bible, you better hide it, bury it, put it on a well, because if Jefferson is elected, he'll be taking all the Bibles away. Now, the irony here is that in terms of their personal religious views, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson are not too far apart. They're both, they're both Unitarian. One coin, they both admire Jesus for his moral teacher. But the, 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 the Federalists are treating Jefferson as if he is an agent that could control what happens in the nation's religious life. And the, the Democratic Republicans, and they're supported by quite a few uh, ardent sectarian Protestants say, no, he's going to keep us free in order to let the Bible operate under its own authority. Well, the election takes place. Uh, the Federalists are just shaking in their boots and nothing happens. So Jefferson is uh, actually he does moderate. He becomes a little bit more conservative on his religious views, but that's not the point. He, he keeps he maintains the, the weekly uh, religious services that are held in the U.S. Capitol. He maintains the federal subsidy for uh, Protestant missionaries working with the Native Americans. <coughs> he tries to actually bend public opinion in, in peaceful ways. And the uh, opponents of Jefferson, who are so, so worried that he would bring in a kind of French radical atheism, they begin to operate as the sectarians and saying, well, if we're going to do things, we've got to do things voluntarily. We can't rely on the government to be the supporters of religion. Jefferson may not turn out to be so bad as we thought, but we've got to get busy. And so it's in those early Jeffersonian years, 1803, 1804, 1805, local Bible societies spring up to raise money, mission societies to send uh, 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 agents into the frontier, mostly dealing with uh, 
Europeans moving to the frontier, a little bit to Native Americans. But there's a there's a, almost a complete move to democratic voluntary organization <clears throat> as a way to promote Christian faith, but then also Christian values. And retrospectively, this move is massively successful. One of the really um, important items in U.S. history, not just U.S. religious history, is the success of the churches, primarily the Methodists, but also to some degree the, the Congregationalists, Presbyterians, eventually the Christian churches, disciples of Christ, the, the massive success in, in enlisting the population. At the time of the revolution, figures differ, but regular church attachment, maybe a fifth to a third of the population. By the time of the American Civil War, it's over a half, maybe as much as, as two thirds. The Methodists are in the lead. The Methodists are quite apolitical, but the other churches add on and they stop looking to the state to support religious values in general, and they look to voluntary activity. So by the time you get to the 1830s and 40s, and Americans are writing to Europeans about the way in which religion works in the United States, there's a tr always stressing, we rely on voluntary activity to get our work done. We do not rely upon government subsidies. And, and, and the, the, the Christianization of the United States is really a marvel in, in the mm -hmm. uh, modern world history. Yeah. Um, in the book, you talk about the rise, uh, speaking of the Methodists, you talk about the rise of Methodism. And um, you say it, uh, it ranks as among the most important developments in the early history of the United States. Yes, the Methodists uh, really are a very new movement, a few hundred adherents before the American Revolution. These are, these are agents um, sent to the United States by John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. After the War for Independence, there's, there's a kind of, uh, it's not a breakaway from Wesley, but there's, a, there's an, in, there's a, um, a, a, the Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States is formed in 1784. It has its own leaders, particularly Francis Asbury, who really was one of the great Americans of, of his day and at, at all time. And from just a few thousand adherents in the 1790s, by, by the Civil War, there are more Methodist ministers and there are members of the U.S. military, something like almost 20,000 either itinerating or settled Methodist ministers out of about 55,000 churches or church-like structures. But by the Civil War, we've got a growing number of Catholics, but still it's, it's a basically Protestant enterprise, and, and the Methodists are, are the leaders. What's significant for my purposes in thinking about uh, uh, the, the developments in U.S. history, generally U.S. history, is the Methodists into the 1820s and 30s are, are, are not very political. Francis Asbury seized George Washington several different times as, as bringing Methodist uh, messages from the Methodist Church. He only writes in his journal once about seeing the president, and he does it in two or three sentences, uh, but he spends page after page of his public journal talking about he's going to this place, he preaches on this text, there's a good response. He preaches in this text. There's a bad response. He talks with the people organizing organizing the churches. So Methodists are not known as either Jeffersonians or Federalists. The first uh, governor of, of Ohio is a Jeffersonian Methodist, man named Tiffin. One of the early governors of, of Delaware is a man named Bassett, who's a Federalist. They're alike in actually following the early Methodist 
desire to get rid of slavery, because both start out as slave owners and manumit their slaves, but otherwise they're just they're public servants. They're not tied up to the really strong ideological battles between Federalists and Jeffersonians, mm-hmm. and they, they set the tone for religious life, and eventually most of the churches follow along, not necessarily in theology, but in just getting out and doing things. So mm-hmm. it's even it's interesting to think of Catholic history in the United States, where there's a real a real effort by the bishops and uh, the priests to, to keep a keep a hold on the democratic tendencies that are <laughs> seeping in from the Protestant churches. They have what, what Catholic historians know about the trustee controversy, where the mm. where, where lay Catholics are trying to organize to control the property of their churches in the way that the Protestants do. But of course, that doesn't work with traditional Catholic doctrine. But so you're getting more Catholics, but even they're coming at least a little bit under the influence of these voluntaristic, it's probably a better way of putting it than democratic, but the voluntaristic norms that Protestants are using to construct their churches, but then also try to construct a positive Christian civilization. All right. Um, if you could talk a little bit about uh, the importance of sermons and sermonizing this period. Um, sermons uh, during this time period, at least through the 1830s, uh, are by far the nation's most uh, most witnessed form of public speech. Um, but you say that uh, sermons are some of the most underdocumented and underanalyzed uh, documents in American history. Right. This, this is uh, a, a notion that I first uh, developed following a, a really good book on uh, colonial era sermons by Harry Stout, in which he, he showed that if you grew up in New England, you, you were good, 80%, 75% of what you heard about the world is going to be in the sermons you attended. That's not quite that extent throughout the rest of the United States. But uh, think about a world in which... Um, the U.S. postal system is just developing. I tried to do a calculation a few years ago. I think it's obviously an estimate, but I think it's probably the case that the so-called average American would have heard on the course of the year more sermons from a Methodist minister than they received pieces of mail. So there was, uh, there, there was uh, a lot of week-by-week preaching, of course, attendance was, was never 100%, but uh, one of the phenomena that differentiates religious life in the United States in the first two-thirds of the 19th century from today is that maybe twice as many people were regular attenders at church than actually belonged formally to church, whereas today, you take a poll, you'll find, I don't know, 50 to 60% of people say, well, I belong to a church, and, and that, that uh, attendance is around 25 or 30%. Yeah. So, so there's a, uh, a tremendous infrastructure, and the, the date you mentioned is a good one, because after the 1830s, we do get a, a, a much more vigorous periodical press. We get the penny newspapers that come out of uh, New York City and, and other places. So there's a lot more competition of, of, uh, for mental space. Up to that time, up to the 1830s, the religious periodicals, so some of them uh, in, interdenominational, the Methodist were the best of those two, but usually weekly newspapers, had the largest circulation of any uh, newspapers or magazines in, in the country. Um, the political divisions that come with the um, uh, 
after the Nat Turner Rebellion, the rise of uh, William Lloyd Garrison's agitation over slavery, uh, eventually the, was the 1850 Compromise, and then obviously the run-up to the Civil War, th these uh, political events began to take the place in many public American lives of what had been religion, even though sermons keep going. And one of the really good things about the history books written concerning the Civil War in recent days had been how much attention is being paid to the sermons that troops heard, the sermons that were regularly offered, white South, white North, the sermons that African-American congregations heard, and how important they were in reflecting, but then sometimes also influencing public viewpoints on the war itself. And then and after the, the uh, Civil War, there still is a, a long and strong sermon tradition. Um, the diary of, of uh, James Garfield becomes president, actually the only president who's an ordained minister and the disciples of Christ is interesting. He writes in his diaries in the, in the 18, early 1870s, well, I went to such and such sermons today, heard two sermons. I don't think sermons are as effective as they used to be. We, we, <laughs> need, we need to read more. So they're, they're, they're still there. And, and one of the things I try to do in the book is, is look at the sermons given after the death of major leaders. So Washington, Lincoln, mm. Garfield, and McKinley. And uh, what the difficulty was that particularly for these latter people, when there's a lot more publications, you just, they're just never-ending reports on the sermons that were given to memorialize Gar Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley after their, their assassinations. You can trace some, some, some significant changes in what texts were used, a lot more texts from the New Testament, a lot, lot fewer from the Old Testament, and, and some other changes, but, but still, the, the sermons are, are ubiquitous. Okay, uh, shifting gears a little bit, um, if you could uh, talk about the the biblical presence in this time period in Black America, and, and, right. and when, what are the what are the distinctive elements of of Black biblical interpretation? So the first publications by African American African colonies are in 1760. Through the end of the rest of the 18th century, there are some, a few notable publications, but, but really still just a, a major handful. There are the, the, the uh, amazing uh, experiences of Elodoi Equiano, a big text in the 1780s. There are, uh, the poems of Phyllis Wheatley are, are celebrated in the 1770s. But there's not, not a whole lot of black publication. And... Uh, after the, uh, particularly beginning in the 1770s, and people start arguing about whether slavery is right or not, there's a vigorous Bible-based defense of enslavement. So you'd think, well, here are people who are being enslaved, in, in at least partially, because the white population thinks that the word of God allows for slavery. But yet, it, it's a different story, uh, beginning actually in the early 18th century, but then accelerating throughout the, the century and on to the 19th century. There is a, a really significant turn toward Christianity of a generally Protestant sort, although, as, as a lot of good scholars have pointed out, there, there are oftentimes some African elements that remain in, in the Christianity uh, promoted by uh, black people. Some 
of the expressions of Christian faith look like what's happening in white society. So, uh, for example, um, Richard Allen, who's the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and he's an ally of Francis Asbury, the great Methodist leader, remains a consistent Methodist because he likes the, the uh, hymnody, the, the works of John Wesley, the, the things that other Americans, white Americans, like about the Methodists. But he's also uh, engaged in, in, a, in a, a liberationist, emancipationist, that uh, Dennis Dickerson, the great historian of the AME, is right there, an emancipationist understanding of the Bible. So, so this, the Bible is not only a book that you read and then organize your life by. The Bible is a, uh, a source of exemplars. It's a uh, fountain of good stories that tell about uh, the strength of God coming to help people who, who have been deprived of capacity to run their own lives. And, and there, there is a tradition that also is, is very strong by the 1820s and 30s of black attachment to Christian faith by people who hear the Bible and take it to heart before they're able to read the Bible. Frederick Douglass would be an example of, of such a one, as he explains in his several autobiographies. So, so you're having a common attachment to the Bible in increasing numbers. By the time you get to the 1840s and 50s, you've got people like James W.C. Pennington who are just as intelligent and, and know how to put the Bible to use in the, in the white way. Earlier, an AME minister by the name of Daniel Coker had written one of the most effective Bible-based attacks on slavery. And Pennington, in the, that was 18-teens, 1840s, Pennington would, would do the same. But more generally, the black attachment to scripture depends upon oral transmission. It depends upon inserting the life story of blacks into the stories of the Bible. And it it uh, makes a great deal of exemplars. So uh, 50 years or so ago, Eugene Genovese pointed out that, uh, that, that as African-American Christianity became significant, the figure of Moses leading his people into the promised land and the figure of Jesus, the savior from our sins, w w was amalgamated. And Moses, Jesus figures are important for blacks who can read, and become really very rapidly educated in the white way, and they're important for blacks who, who can't read. So uh, people know about Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman as really effective anti-slave liberators. Both of these women, pre-literate, deeply familiar with the Bible, able to quote extensive passages. One of them, I think it's Sojourner Truth, was also... Uh, known for singing hymns that were based upon on, on the Bible. So, so this this is not learned in the Enlightenment white way. It's not referencing chapter and verse like many white men and black ministers would do in a sermon. Mm. It's a really deep internal uh, attachment to the scriptures. And that will be uh, neglected by the white society. So even though a little bit before the Civil War, but then really a lot. And I, I end the book with, with uh, referencing to several really kind of uh, bright, intelligent uh, uh, black 
church leaders in the 1880s, 90s, early years of the 20th century who are writing just as positively as white church leaders. But the white society doesn't pay much attention and actually doesn't pay much attention until the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s right. to an internalization of the Bible that is, we would say, for lack of a better term, evangelical in its religious angle. Black people who followed the Christian way thought people needed to confess their sins, to trust in the Holy Spirit, to rely upon God's grace. But unlike a lot of white appropriation of similar themes, that spiritual message never was separated from mm. the need to be physically liberated. So you get these wonderful early, where the first, the first exposit, expository work by a black woman, is by a woman named Mariah Stewart. There have been some really nice books about her recently. Uh, she is literate uh, in Boston, but she preaches, she, she publishes her meditations. They're not formal sermons, but they're just, you know, every paragraph has three or four phrases from the Bible. And then you get the, the remarkable um, narr narrative of Harriet Jacob explaining her escape from slavery. And again, not quite to the same degree, but almost this 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 deep immersion in the Bible as a book of liberation, and you say, well, liberation spiritually or or socially? Well, it's a bad question. It's just a book of liberation, and that that theme, uh, that that emphasis, becomes stronger, uh, more widespread. Eventually, it's joined with a great deal of traditional learning. But it does represent a different way of appropriating the Bible than in almost any of the white communities. Um, there's a little bit of an analogy to uh, Native Americans, Indians, although uh, for different reasons, the, the, the uh, Christianization process works differently for, for Native Americans. Mm. Yeah, and uh, sort of on that same theme, uh, or at least uh, when it comes to uh, the issue of slavery, uh, right, that the more conflicted biblical interpretation uh, becomes on slavery, becomes on race, uh, the less and less scripture is going to influence uh, national development and uh, these uh, interpretive controversies during the antebellum period over, over slavery, over race, these are going to affect the, the history of the Bible, in the United States at least, uh, more than any other development or set of, set of circumstances before or since. That, that's right. And uh, uh, the reason, obviously, there's a lot of pages in the book and yeah. there's a detail that needs to be um, understood carefully. But the basic American experience was that individuals um, looked at the Bible and were convinced for for, for different reasons that I, I try to explain. We're convinced that either the Bible is a, uh, a, a book that at least allows for slavery. And a really important point is that as many white Bible readers in the North believe that, as probably more believe that than, than held the opposite view. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about North-South division. We're talking about differences in, 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 in interpreting the Bible. So if I, whatever, wherever I come from down on this issue, if I say it's very clear to me 
that the passage in Leviticus, which Leviticus 25, which says that the children of Israel may buy and pass on to their children those who are captured outside. It's very clear to me that that uh, substantiates uh, American slavery. And the Apostle Paul, remember, said to servants, everybody knew that servants was the Greek word for slave, servants, slaves, obey your master and the Lord. It's very clear to me that the Bible allows for slavery. But then I hear someone say, well, no, you, you're misunderstanding the Bible. The Bible really uh, pushes in the direction of, of liberation. I'm going to conclude that person is really not taking the Bible seriously. On the other side, there are some really good arguments to say for individual passages of Scripture. Didn't Moses in Exodus 21 say that man-stealers should be put to death? So that's a favorite text of the anti-slave people. And uh, didn't Jesus say that you're supposed to treat other people the way you want to be treated? If you can't see the truth of these matters, then you can you might pretend to believe the Bible. I understand you're following these different proof texts that you have, but you're really misunderstanding the character of Christianity. So we have a huge divide in how people think about putting the Bible to use in their day-to-day -day lives between people who are agree who agree that the scriptures are the word of God but they are disagreeing fundamentally in the interpretive systems of how to interpret the Bible, and they're disagreeing fundamentally in what they think about the morality of individuals who cannot see things their way. So the scriptures, of course, are going to continue on. They're going to be very important in Protestant churches in different ways. Catholics will have, will have a, 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 a several spokesmen late in the 19th century, are really effective in t showing how the Bible supports Catholicism against Protestantism and how the Bible shows that the Catholics are really for American democracy. And then eventually, by the 1900, you've got a really substantial Jewish attachment to, to the scriptures as well. But So this is all of this is happening in America, but there's, there's very little cohesion that can be brought to bear on how scripture can be put to use in the shaping of American civilization. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the Civil War, and uh, you write about, well, first of all, <laughs> it's not your phrase, but uh, uh, it's been called, the Civil War is called the holiest war in American history. And then the Civil War and its immediate aftermath is uh, where you write that this sort of engine of Anglo-Scots American Protestantism that uh, that has made scripture so central to American public life uh, really begins to run out of steam. And then after the 1860s, as you said, when you mentioned the, uh, you know, the arrival of, uh, of my guys, the Catholics, you know, mostly, you know, a lot of Catholics uh, at, you know, post-Civil War and right. going forward and then uh, Jews as well. Uh, the history of the Bible uh, is going to become much more, much, much more complex and, and much more genuinely uh, pluralistic. That's right. I, in many ways, um, I'm a Protestant, but I don't I, I don't think that was an entirely negative uh, matter. The, neg the negative part is that, as, as, as Alan Gelzo of Princeton University has said, later in American history, 
for example, in, in how to respond to the, the, the boom in industrialization, the great growth of cities in the last third of the 19th century. Later in American history, it would have been good to have a moral compass that most Americans thought was a word from God. There, there wasn't one. So, uh, so that's, that's a deficit. But uh, the, the advantage is that if uh, groups are not able, for the most part, able to move from their beliefs about the Bible to getting a voluntary agreement on those views about the Bible, then, uh, in my view, at least some of the attention should be going back to what the sacred books do to support your religious group. Your, your religious community. Mm -hmm. And I do think that in some ways, not having a, an informal Bible-based civilization can be a good thing if, if the scriptures are kept for the use of religious purposes primarily and not made instruments of, of uh, voluntary coercion for the society as a whole. That's not, I didn't explain that very well, but. <laughs> yeah. No, I got you. I want, I want to say the title is The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization. I want to say there are some things that were lost when the ideal of a Bible civilization went down, but there also were some things that were gained. So it's not a, uh, it's not, it's not a simple story that with moral good guys and moral bad guys. Right. Um, uh, back, uh, I guess it's back to sort of on the same time, uh, looking at... Uh, uh, the black experience with scripture. How did um, uh, how did the singular character of black reliance on scripture stand out? Uh, you know, in the postbellum period. So, you know, during Reconstruction, during the Jim Crow eras. How did, um, like I said, how did that singular character stand out? What I think ha happened was that the, the relatively informal, you can even say relatively inchoate black attachment to scripture strengthened in the wake of uh, the end of Reconstruction. There had been, uh, from 1865 to about 1875, a 10-year period when uh, the desire to learn to read, um, the establishment of colleges in the South, some black agencies started, some started by northern uh, white philanthropic groups, saw a, a, a real advance in public Christianity and African-American communities. But then the end of Reconstruction, the, the tightening of Jim Crow, the, uh, the segregationist ethos that prevailed throughout much of the United States way into the 20th century, these things meant that the opportunities for living a fuller life outside of restricted communities were, 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 were cut short. In that situation, there are just a lot of very strong, positive, black church life. Some of it is, is desperate. It's the only domain where, people, where black people have control over their lives are, are um, the, the religious group. But some of it is religious plus cultural. So I was able to identify, and thank, thanks again to, I mentioned Dennis Dickerson, but scholars like Alan Callahan and Vincent Wimbush of done a terrific job of their own scholarship and mobilizing others. But, but there are people like Alexander Crummel, a terrific preacher who, who uh, is uh, shrewd about African history and American history. 
who teaches at different places. He's, he's in Africa for a while. He's back in the Episcopal Church, actually. I end the book, the proper, uh, uh, with Francis Grimke, Presbyter, black Presbyterian minister in, in Washington, D.C., who, who, who is, sounds like a fundamentalist when he's talking about the need for Jesus, and he's a sharp, and he's a founder of the NAACP, mm-hmm. and he's a supporter of W.B. Du Bois. He, he writes, really interesting when he writes about Du Bois, he's, because this will be a little bit later than the 1920s. He says, I went to hear Du Bois at Howard University, and I really regret how he doesn't pay attention to the Bible and Christian teaching. But he sure is a terrific person in supporting what we our community needs in society. So here's a person who, unlike almost all of white society, who is very active in movements of, of social justice and very traditional in his religious views. He, he's, he's excited when Woodrow Wilson becomes president because Wilson has written an article about how important Sunday school and study of the Bible is. And, and Grimke actually writes to Wilson. He says, Mr. President, I know that the, that the Negro community would have said, you know, we'll, we'll really appreciate your leadership because you, you trust in the Bible. But then just a few months later, he writes to Wilson again and says, Mr. President, I'm, I'm terrifically disappointed that you've resegregated the civil service, that you you have pushed back the small amounts of, of uh, progress we've made uh, in, in a liberationist sense. So here's, Grimke is a wonderful guy, and thanks to Carter Woodson, pioneering black historian, there's a wonderful four-volume four collection of his sermons and writings and, and meditations. The, 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 uh, the, the internal strength, the internal wisdom in a powerless or a community where there's not much chance for external power. That internal wisdom is really potent. And it'll be that internal wisdom that mediated by a generation or two more, American society will finally pay attention to in the 1950s and 60s. Mm. So, yeah, so like we get to the, we get now to the early 20th century and um, you know, uh, in this period, as compared to earlier uh, in American history, the Bible or Scripture isn't going to remain as central um, to American uh, public life or even private life uh, as it was uh, before. But um, but how did the Bible's place as an enduring cultural landmark remain secure in this period and moving forward? I, I do, I do think, and here I have to speak as a believer myself, that, that, that the scripture remains an enduring cultural landmark because it is so effective in uh, orienting people's lives to God and, and to their duties to the, those who are nearest and dearest. And I think uh, historically it's very clear that, that that process takes place in all varieties, many varieties of Protestants, Catholics, certainly Jews now, and, and Muslims with, with uh, with alternative holy books, but from the Abrahamic uh, uh, tradition. Mm. So that that th- there is a religious anchor uh, as a cultural landmark. The, the 1911 celebrations for the King James Version of the Bible were, were important because there were so many people who wrote about uh, literature, language, uh, the, the 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 ways in which uh, the King James Bible had influenced the development of, of culture 
some of this is suspect, I think, because it's basically saying here, here was this book that people used to think was important for religion, and now it's really important for vocabulary and giving us <laughs> images and the like. There are actually a few Protestants who are nervous, a couple actually shrewd Catholic observers in, in uh, 1911 who say, well, King James Version is great, but you know, isn't, isn't it really important for people to find out about God and not really about just American democracy? But be, because of the ongoing um, strength of Abrahamic faith in in private lives and in, in churches, synagogues, mosques, uh, the Bible remains very important as, as a religious item. And in a pluralistic, free society, that ongoing activity is is going to uh, come out. Uh, just a wonderful book by Robert Alter, the great. Uh, Jewish scholar of the scriptures called Pen of Iron to show how significant the King James Version has been for major American mm. writers, uh, Hawthorne and Melville, right up to uh, 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 novelist in, in the post-World War II period, Saul Bellow um, mm. and a, a couple of others. But uh, so, so it's not just that the, the, the King James Version is a source of language, it's also a source of orientation towards self and the divine, self and uh, the transcendent. And it's that kind of uh, reality that I think makes the Bible of a continued importance for personal, family, church and synagogue use, but then also an extension in society. Now, we live in a day of hyper polemics, and I'm, I'm I, I, I sort of run for the hills and everybody says, anybody says the Bible says, and then tries to tell you what to do because mm. um, I mean, there is a kind of tilt to the right, but then there's also a, a lot of left people who can, can do that same kind of thing. And I understand why it happens. And in some ways it's good that people are trying to move out from their personal anchorage into an effect on society. But there've been so many examples in us history where people have, instrumentalized the scriptures, weaponized the Bible, and I think that that has resulted in, in uh, undermining what has been the foundation mm. of a scriptural presence. So obviously it remains important, and of course the King James Version is no longer the, the, the dominant version, it's apparently still the most read of all scripture translations, but there's all sorts of others. Yeah. And uh, certainly the modern translations let people understand more what's happening in Scripture. So uh, one of the reasons for stopping and not trying to write about the 20th century is that just just so much going on and so much confusion. I think you'd have to start as a very young historian and, and work, work a lifetime to figure out the Bible in the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, back to the King James Version. Um, I said, I'm, I'm Catholic. Uh, but I do have a soft spot <laughs> uh, for the King James Version. Um, I really, um, uh, there's just something so, uh, such literary power uh, in that book. And I think, you know, um, we're a society now where uh, not too many people are, uh, or certainly not the majority of people are, um, you know, reading the Bible 
every day or even every month or every year, but I think it, you would, um, it would be shocking to people um, to know the ubiquity of right. language in our secular culture that comes from uh, the King James Version, um, you know, words in terms of phrases and all these things that um, it's almost like, you know, how they say, uh, you know, fish don't know that water is wet because right. they don't have any other experience. Uh, but I think if you'd like to show people where, you know, if you just had like a list of, um, like I said, uh, different uh, phrases and illusions, illusions and all these things that came from the King James Bible that are just part of everyday speech, it would uh, really uh, sort of shock people. And at the same time, um, you know, that's part of the the tragedy of of uh, people not being familiar with. Um, uh, with that Bible, or at least that version of the Bible anymore, um, is that it's sort of a loss of cultural literacy when uh, they may encounter it in uh, language from the King James Version in a novel or even in a movie or a TV show or something like that. They may not right. understand, uh, you know, where uh, where that language comes from, what uh, what um, you know, and how the author or the uh, writer or the movie screenwriter might be trying to make an allusion to something and people might not get what that allusion is because they just don't know, um, you know, the context uh, from, you know, where that language comes from. Right. I think that the book I mentioned by uh, Robert Alter is just terrific in that regard. It shows how, how many of the titles, for example, William Faulkner's books, Absalom, Absalom, for example, and, and then, um, uh, and many, you know, the great works of literature, the Moby Dick is just Captain Ahab. You just you just can't, you can't understand it. But, the sure. but the back to your, your comment about groups not raised in the Protestant tradition, I, I discovered in, in working on this book that when Francis Patrick Kenrick, the Bishop of Catholic Bishop of Philadelphia, said about his own translation of the Bible into English because he thought American Catholics needed their own version of the Bible, he wrote in the preface to the first, what he first published is, I am full of admiration for the King James Bible. Yeah. And I'd like to have as much of that retained, but I, we need a scriptures that are for Catholics. And then 50 years later, Solomon Schechter, the great uh, Jewish scholar who migrated eventually to the United States and, and played such an important role for the Jewish Publication Society, he helped sponsor and really was a driving, a driving force behind the the New English Jewish translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, 1917, 1918. But he said the same thing. We need a Bible translation to English for Jewish communities. But I want to pause and say how wonderful the King James Version has been for all of English language civilization. So even these, so to speak, competitors recognize exactly what, what you, you've said there was a lot of good material published in 2011, the 400th anniversary mm. of the King Version, although just a kind of a, a drip compared to the huge outlay in 1911 that yep. pointed out you know, the hundreds of phrases that and they actually often go back to William Tyndale's English language Bible that the King James translators use, but just how, how uh, thick they are in the English language even to this day. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Well, uh, we've already gone a little over an hour. 
longer than I uh, told you I'd keep you, so um, I apologize for that. But, I mean, like I said, there's just so much stuff I wanted to get to in the book. But, uh, like I said, since we're already over the hour limit, um, I'll, I, I guess I'll just ask you uh, the question I ask uh, pretty much everybody that comes on the podcast and uh, the question I ask to, to end the podcast, and that's uh, basically what uh, – what would you like the audience to get out of this book or what, what's the one thing you'd want uh, a reader to take away from reading it? Yeah, one thing. So I'm, I'm an academic. I have to, I'm going to have to, <laughs> I, I think, I, I mean, I it can have subsections and, you know, yes, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll do one sentence yeah. with it. With <laughs> I think uh, I've, I've tried to show how very significant belief in the Bible was for American history comma, while also showing the potential and pitfalls when a religious book like the Bible becomes so actively involved in shaping the direction of political and social life. All right. Well, very well put. Very succinct. Very well put. All right. Uh, well, uh, before we go, is there anything uh, anything else uh, you'd like to plug while we're here? Any uh, other appearances or any other things you're working on or anything like that? No, I, 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 this is, book took an awful long time to do, and I'm kind of uh, recovering from the shock of having it done. I, <laughs> say I, I do appreciate oh, your, no. your having read the how book long, Oh, how long did it take you to uh, do the book? Well, it really did get started in, in the late 1970s. I did an essay that appeared in a a book from 1982 on the use of the Bible uh, between the revolution and the Civil War. And there's just actually a little bit of that essay in this book, but most, mostly over the last maybe 20 years, it's been an, uh, an ongoing research project. Yeah, wow. Well, um, you can definitely tell when you read it the, uh, the amount of care and thought and uh, – uh, diligent scholarship that went into uh, making this book. It really is a, um, a, I don't know if you consider it your magnum opus, but it's a, uh, it is a quite the uh, piece of scholarship and a very, um, uh, very uh, intriguing and uh, uh, read and uh, really um the, the story of it, the structure of it, really structures uh, sucks you in, and uh, it's you know it's quite uh, the lengthy book. I mean it's not, I mean it, you know it's uh, just about a little under 700 pages, and like I said, but there's probably uh, you know 150 pages of endnotes and everything. So I mean you can just uh, tell the amount of work that it went to it. So um, it really is a very very um, fantastic uh, piece of history, piece of scholarship, and I really. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast to, uh, to discuss the book with me. Well, thank you very much. I, it's been a delight to chat with you about the book. Yes, thank you very much. And yeah, and the book again, the name uh, is America's Book, The Rise and Decline of a, Bi of a Bible Civilization, 1794 to 1911, the author, uh, Dr. Mark A. Knoll. So make sure you guys go up and, and pick up that book. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And uh, if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbensonandheartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, uh, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our 
uh, Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast. So you can reach out to us there. You know, uh, uh, send us a DM. You know, give us a follow. Uh, you know, if you have any questions or comments or anything, you know, you can always reach out to us there. Our um, Twitter handle is what is it? Uh, at ill books at i l l books. So make sure you check that out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye bye. Never shall die.